Hello, and welcome to the March 2022 Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. On this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss the jury system. The jury trial is a vital part of America's justice system. Juries provide an opportunity for citizens to participate by determining community standards and expectations in accordance with the law. Jury service also gives people greater insight into the justice system and provides a method to resolve disputes in a peaceful manner. Today, the Lady Justices will discuss how the jury system is the same or different in various states, the importance of serving on a jury, jury selection, jury pay, and the impact of COVID-19 on jury trials. They will also discuss video evidence in the courtroom and how it can impact a case. Finally, the lightning round will focus on fun facts and insights about the Lady Justices. That's what's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Lady Justice Women of the Court. I'm Justice Rhonda Wood of the Arkansas Supreme Court. And once again, joined by my friends, Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of the Michigan Supreme Court and Justice Beth Walker of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. We started this podcast to provide civic education about state courts. One goal was to examine how state courts are similar in many ways, but also different. So today we are going to look at the jury system and how it's the same or different in our various states. But since it's March and it's Women's History Month, I'm going to ask that everyone indulge me with a brief history of the first women to serve on a jury in our country. And that occurred in Wyoming. The territory of Wyoming gave women the right to vote in 1869, which was really early. In 1870, the then Chief Justice gave women the right to sit on jury panels. On March 9th, 1870, which interesting that it happened in March, Um, Women's History Month, the first woman that was served with a summons was Eliza Stewart Boyd, a school mistress, and she actually was selected to serve along with five other women. So there were six women on the same panel, which to me, it seems remarkable that there was that many. And the prosecuting attorney objected and challenged all six women, but the judge denied the challenge. They served for three weeks on a trial involving cattle stealing, illegal branding, and murder. Apparently, the press swarmed the trial, made fun of them. Uh, There were caricatures in the paper depicting them. The women refused to be ridiculed. They stood firm and they refused to be photographed because they did not want the trial to be about them, but about the merits of the case. And it was interesting, a little side note, that the reports in the press said that the men jurors in respect for the women, refrained from drinking, gambling, and smoking during the women's service with them on the jury. So the trial was probably a little bit more restrained and uh, probably fair with the women being on there. So that's a little bit about the first time that women served in race. I don't know what either of you think of that. <laughs> it's a fa- I love the story. I mean, first of all, and so many parts of it capture my attention. So first of all, that we go from cattle stealing and illegal branding, which are bad, to murder all in one. What is going on? I want to know more about the crime. I just want to know the whole story. Um, and also what's happening in jury trials without women? They Do they drink and gamble and smoke in the jury box or is that just in the jury room? I, I want to know more about juries in Wyoming in you know the 1870s. It sounds really interesting. And I will say that about the same time, and this is a fun fact, the West Virginia actually the West Virginia Constitution specifically provides in its Bill of Rights, Article 3, for jury service for women. 
And so I think this was probably at about the same time that they were drinking and gambling and smoking in the juries in Wyoming. So West Virginia says in Article 3, Section 21, regardless of sex, all persons who are otherwise qualified shall be eligible to serve as jurors in both criminal and civil cases. So it's in our Bill of Rights in West Virginia, which is kind of cool. And the other fun fact is it's Article 21, or rather Section 21, and it's right before Section 22, which is the right to keep and bear arms, uh, which West Virginians, as I've discussed before, take pretty seriously. So the fact that the women came before, women on juries before keeping bear arms, it's important here. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Well, I'm going to tweet and put when we do this, I have a picture of one of the caricatures that was in the press. So I'll make sure and include that. But yeah, it does make you want, I, I feel like there needs to be books written on this. But there are some really good articles. We can probably link to them too about Eliza Boyd, what her thoughts and comments were years later after this trial. So I'll do that as well. So going, you know, deep diving more that what's, it's really fundamental, the right to jury trial in the United States. And I feel like we're fortunate in our country that that remains the case. But our states have different approaches. So, and Beth started a little bit about the constitutionality and how it is in our state. So Bridget, what's the, like the, the constitutional provisions in Michigan? Yeah, I mean, so of course, it goes without saying that that trial by jury is a fundamental right in the United States Constitution, right? We know it's guaranteed in Article 3, Section 2, and the 6th and 7th Amendments. But the Michigan Constitution, likewise, guarantees the right to trial by jury in Article 1, Sections 14 and 20. Section 14 establishes right of a jury trial, but says that it will be waived in all civil cases unless demanded by one of the parties, which is a funny sort of, I don't know, is it a double negative or a weird negative or some kind of negative? It's a weird way to put it. And it also says that a verdict uh, will be received in civil cases when 10 out of 12 jurors agree. As you might imagine, what that means is anytime somebody files a civil action, they just have a jury demand in it. So it, it, which isn't to say that sometimes it doesn't get waived, but everybody files a jury demand. And then section 20 guarantees the right to a speedy and public jury trial in criminal prosecutions. And it allows a jury of less than 12 jurors for misdemeanors punishable by not more than a year. What, what does Arkansas do, Rhonda? So we have it in Arkansas, it's article seven, and it says that it extends to cases at law. And so probably the unique provision is we had a separation of law and equity. And so uh, it's always been held that for cases with equitable remedies, there is not a right to jury trial, but there is a right to when there is a legal remedy. And if there are both, then the default is you have the right to jury trial. So if it was sort of a probate matter or a matter of the remedy was to, uh, you know, have your land back or something like that, then uh, specific performance, um, you would not have a right to jury trial in Arkansas. But of course, everybody has the right to the criminal jury trial provision. That's probably the unique part about Arkansas. We do have the ability to waive it. There's been, we've had some interesting case law in disputes about whether or not you can contractually waive it um, in Arkansas, and currently you cannot, which is probably interesting compared to most states. Well, West Virginia is very similar to Michigan and Arkansas. We have two subsections, section 13 and 14 of our Article 3 Bill of Rights. Section 13 talks about the right to jury trial in civil cases, 
says where the value in controversy exceeds $20, excluding interest and costs, there is a right to jury trial. And then section 14, uh, that's a specific right to a six person jury. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more, the size of juries, but uh, civil trials in West Virginia under the constitution, six person, six men at the time, the later provisions added women. And then section 14 uh, talks about the jury trial or the jury of 12 men will hear criminal cases. Uh, again, that was amended later to include women. But so our constitution specifically delineates the number of people on the jury. It's interesting to me that it has a dollar amount in the constitution. Has that yes. been changed? So Taylor Swift couldn't sue for a dollar and get a jury trial? In I don't think so. I mean, I think you have to hit $20 and okay. I don't think it has All been, right. I think that yeah. might be, I don't know if that's where it started. Um, okay. And I should have checked on that before this podcast, <laughs> no. but. Um, that but case has not I been in front of you yet. <laughs> no, no, we, uh, pretty much everything clears the, the $20 requirement. Okay. And well, I bet, Tay, I bet Tay Tay could file a $20 demand. She, she would know what she was doing. So yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So Beth, how then are the potential jurors selected in West Virginia? So like in uh, all of our states, our jurors are managed at the county level. So there's not a statewide you know, necessarily database. There is for voters, and that's a whole different thing, although the jurors might tap into the voter registration or the jury list. But our trial court clerks randomly select names from a master list in their county. And that that list is made up of people who reside in the county, who file a tax return the previous year, who are registered to vote in the county, or who hold a valid driver's license in the county. Jurors have to be at least 18, a U.S. citizen, and a resident of the county where they are called to serve in West Virginia. Yeah, in Michigan, it's similar in that the county ultimately, the counties ultimately control the list, but the Secretary of State sends each county clerk a randomized list of people who have a driver's license or a state ID card and reside in the county by April 15th of every year. So April 15th, the the county clerk gets this, you know, big data set. And then there's a statute that requires for a jury board to figure out who among that list of prospective folks are qualified to serve. And the, the qualifications are set out by another statute, which requires that a juror be a U.S. citizen, be 18 years old or older, a resident of the county that the person is going to be selected in, can communicate in the English language, is physically and mentally able to carry out the functions of a juror, not have served as a juror in a court of record during the preceding 12 months, and have not been convicted of a felony. In addition to all of that, people who are older than 70 or a nursing mother or a participant, and this is really specific, I have a lot of details here, but anyone who's a participant in the Attorney General's Address Confidentiality Program can be exempt from jury service upon request. So then once the jury board, which oftentimes is basically the chief judge in the county, figures out who among the randomized list that comes from the Secretary of State meets all of those requirements, they have their list of potential jurors and they send out summonses, which do the sort of next level of uh, digging to see who can actually show up and people people can get excused at, at that time as well. What about Arkansas? That's really interesting. <laughs> so kind of been just fascinated listening to that. So Arkansas is pretty simple. It's so a little bit similar to you that the Secretary of State compiles the main list. 
and it's November 1st. And so it's driver's license, registered voters, and then anyone that has a state ID card and is over 18. And then they send that to the counties. And from there, it's just a random poll, computer poll. Do you all have, we have people interested, and by people, I mean legislators, (laughs) um, interested right now in like rethinking a lot of how it works. Like, should there be a better statewide system for jury selection? And I mean, do all of the current exemptions make sense? You know, for example, a, a lot of people have felony convictions nowadays. So they're actually talking about, does it make sense to exclude everybody with a felony conviction? Of course, it's that the legislature, it's their statute, they get to, to decide whether to update it. But I don't know if, if there's any interest in your states in rethinking how jurors are selected right now. We changed in Arkansas to expand beyond the registered voters. Um, it used to be sort of limited. And so it, we expanded it to the driver's license that's been within the last you know decade and to the state ID. And so, but I'll say that when we did that, I'm sorry, it's been longer. Sometimes I forget that I'm older than I am. Um, <laughs> things seem recent, and then they realize they're not because it was when I was on the trial bench, I think that that first happened. And But there were people that were not citizens and were not always the best, most fluent. And there wasn't a requirement. And so we just we brought in an interpreter if, if there wasn't an objection. But we didn't have all the restrictions I do know that we did expand the list, you know, with probably in the last 12 years to capture greater than just registered voters. The tax return thing in West Virginia is interesting, but that's not ex- exclusive. It's just broadening your list, right? That's, that's right. Yes, it's, it's an or list. So right, one of right. those, one of those right, things, right. the main thing, which we're going to talk about in a minute that has come up in West Virginia recently has been jury pay. So yeah. I'll park that until we get to the next topic here. But um, I think it's on the radar screen. I mean, this is something that I personally feel really strongly about because, you know, it's so important. Our whole system sort of hinges on this right to jury trial and, you know, it's in the constitutions. It's But at at a very simple level, I mean, we are counting, you know, our whole system sort of operates on the assumption that your peers are going to determine the outcome of the case, whether you're criminally charged with a crime or whether you've got a dispute with somebody. And, you know, trying to make sure that we have people on juries, you know, most people, the first thing they want to do is get off a jury. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to figure out, is there an exception? Can I get off? Can my boss write me a, uh, an excuse? And, and when I talk to groups, especially civic groups, I say, you know, that's, that's one of the best things you can do is serve on a jury. When you get called, go. It's not convenient. <laughs> it's sometimes, uh, but it's sometimes, you know, difficult if you do get picked. But it's part of what, you know, our courts really, it's really important. And I didn't mean to go off track with my little soapbox, but I think uh, Bridget's nodding. And so I wanna, maybe I she has something on, to add. No, I want to get on your soapbox with you. I completely agree. It's, I mean, it's why we fought all those wars, right? I mean, it, we, we have this under, unbelievable system where your neighbors get to, you know, have a say in how your government, you know, makes really important decisions. So it's really fundamental to, to our democracy. In addition to that, jurors are interviewed in every national study 
um, they always come out of the experience with more respect for mm -hmm. the, the justice system. They, they, they are always impressed. I'm not saying every single juror in every single case, but overall, it really does increase public confidence in what courts do and therefore in the rule of law. So I, I want to just hop up on your soapbox with you. Yeah, well, I think we're all going to get on that soapbox. And I think it goes into what we're going to talk about next. But in some respects, socioeconomic and of representation. And so a lot of times it's people that probably have access to who they know and try to get off the jury service or think that their career path makes them too important to serve professionals. I hate to say, we'll say, you know, I'm too busy. I'm in this medical clinic or I'm here or there. And I, you know, it's, my job's too important to serve. And then I always say, if you were, you know, God forbid, charged with a crime or in a car accident or whatever, would you want someone like you on the jury, right? And then all of a sudden the realization and the light bulbs go off. Well, the same thing is true for those on the sort of lower end of the socioeconomic or aren't as fortunate they need people, you know, representing them on the jurors. And that's one of the reasons I think jury pay matters is there's also people that with our professions, it's not an impact if we serve on the jury. There are day laborers and people that it is an impact to serve on the jury. And so having it where there is not the financial impact to serve um, matters. And so a lot of people don't realize that there is a pay mechanism. Um, states vary widely. Some are very, very low. I was startled to know that Illinois and South Carolina have no payment for jury service. Missouri pays $6 a day for jury service. Arkansas is very high. So it's $50 a day if you serve on a jury. And this was a pretty dramatic increase about 10 years ago. The county can also reimburse for mileage if the person lives outside the city and lives in the greater county area to drive in. Arkansas does also have a provision that if you're in a profession, perhaps you get paid by a salary and it's easier, you can donate your per diem to a list. There's certain nonprofits that are involved with crime victims or legal aid services or the law schools that you can check and have your per diem just donated to them instead of accepting it. So I'm curious, what is your pay like in West Virginia? And what do you think about this impacting representation on the juries? So first of all, I need to find out in West Virginia, because I don't know if we have a provision to donate the way you do in Arkansas. That is that is fantastic. Um, and I need to, to look into that. But our juror rate is, um, I guess, relatively generous compared to, my goodness, <laughs> Illinois, South Carolina and Missouri. Um, we are $40 a day plus reimbursement for mileage traveled uh, to and from court each day. And as I mentioned before, actually, our legislature took up an increase of that amount. It was going to cost estimated cost about $863,000 or something. And it didn't get out of the finance committee because that is a significant amount of funds in our, in our West Virginia budget. But I think it's definitely on the radar screen, you know, folks have to serve and going to the, you know, to the point that Rhonda made, it's a, becomes a question of, I suppose, connections or privilege or whatever you want to call it, you know, for people to try to, you know, get themselves off the list or have the clerk um, get them excused or have the judge excuse them. And, you know, I'm just not a fan of it. I think it's, it's, 
it's first of all, everybody should have to serve the same way on a jury. You know, it's it's not convenient for um, a person who is making a high salary. It's also not convenient for someone who's making a low salary. I mean, it doesn't really matter in my view. And so, you know, I think we should have the pay reasonable and $40 or $50 is probably not tremendously awesome, but at least it's something. And so we, you know, I think the courts also, I'll just throw in that, you know, the courts also try to appreciate jurors and make them feel, you know, make them understand how much their public service is valued. Things like, you know, we did a juror appreciation month in November of last year. You know, we produced a video actually recently to try to educate people who are summoned to jury duty as to the importance of their role and to make them feel, you know, positive about it so that they can go in and know uh, their role in our system even before they start. Because like Bridget said, I think once people understand and see the process, they have a much better appreciation for it. But when you get that thing in the mail or the call or however it comes in, you're like, oh, disruption, you know, busy life. This is hard. And so I think it's up to us to help people understand how important their role is. But Bridget, what about Michigan and jury pay? So Michigan also raised the pay recently in 2018. And since then, jurors are paid 30. It's a little bit nitpicky here, but $30 for the first day of their service, if it's a full day, and $15 for the first day, if it's a half day. I think the I think that's because in the first day, it's usually when there's jury selection and it, a full day doesn't really mean a full day and a half day doesn't really mean a half day. And then for subsequent service days, they're paid $45 for a full day and $22.50 for a half day. I know, pretty nitpicky. And uh, 20 cents a mile round trip from their home to the to the courthouse. I, you know, I, I think I agree with everything you've both said about A, how important it is and B, how it can be a burden. I mean, in particular, it, it's especially a burden for anybody who, if they miss work, doesn't get paid, right? I mean, that is the category of people for, for whom it's it's most difficult. I don't understand how, I, I really, to this day, don't get how the randomized process works such that some people get a summons every two years, basically, are constantly getting a summons. And somebody like me, who's been trying my entire life to get on a jury, can't get one. I got a summons one time. It was a few years ago. So I was already on the court and I filled out all the answers so carefully. And so um, I had my husband read over them. I really, 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 really wanted to get called. And I didn't even get called to the courthouse, but I know other people who get their, get a summons like constantly. So I, I want to figure it out. I'm a little bit worried that the jury clerk at the county courthouse has like a picture of me with a big X over it because I've like wandered by the window and like tried to volunteer, but I don't really get how all that works out. So, and totally aside, but my dad got jury service, got summoned here locally and a jet, he showed up, of course, was thrilled to death. Um, he's retired. And the judge called me and said, um, I see he, oh, actually he sent me a text and said, your dad's out here. I'm going to excuse him. And, and I said, don't you dare. <laughs> I said, this is like the most exciting thing that's happened to him. <laughs> and he, he's like, I, you know, he, I think he knew he had had some health issues. And I was like, please let him like go the distance, you know. I, I like, have to tell you one funny family drawer story. My oldest son was a freshman at the University of Michigan and got it in October. And he's a complete 
he really works hard, studies hard. Never, I don't think the kids ever missed a class and he got a jury summons. And he was terrified that he was going to like get stuck on a trial. And, but he's also the biggest rule. He's the firstborn. He's the biggest rule follower in the whole world. So, you know, he showed up, he's in this jury veneer and he knows the trial judge because she's a family friend. You know, we've, she, I live in Ann Arbor. He, that she, she's someone he's known for a while and he knows that she knows me, that we're friends, you know? And so he's the last person in the box. Um, and so they've already asked everybody else in the box sort of the standard questions like do you know any is anyone in your family a lawyer is anyone in your family a judge and so so she says to him you know well can you answer the questions we asked everybody else and he's like well and I had just been elected to the Michigan Supreme Court and he said well my mom used to be a lawyer but you know like and he knew that she knew that I had been elected to the court, which is really, but but everybody else in the courtroom thought that I had like basically gone to prison or something, right? Like I had been disbarred, you know. And so she was like, <laughs> oh, "That's um, funny." She had to call the lawyers up, and of course, he did get selected, and he had to serve ten days in a med mal case. Oh, wow. And it was like probably the most stressful thing that happened to him in college, and he was a political science major and is now not going to law school and going to medical school. So oh, that's funny. Well, and I'm sure- That might've been the tipping point. Yeah. No, this is what sent him down the different path. But yeah, I'm sure this judge was thinking this, there's no way my dad was gonna get selected once he said, but my dad showed up every day and sat there every day, but never got in the box. So, but anyway. So the one thing that's really, I think, interesting too, is that I think your states are way more interesting than Arkansas is how many jurors serve on a jury. And so in Arkansas, it's 12, but there is a waiver in civil cases that the sides can agree to, to have less than 12. And really that never happens unless an alternate you know, becomes ill and someone becomes ill and suddenly they fall down 11 and they'll say, hey, let's just keep going and we're fine or something like that. And then we do not have jury trials for misdemeanor or municipal cases. So I'm curious, Bridget, how is Michigan? So Michigan, there's like court rules and statutes that, you know, in addition to the constitutional provisions that kind of govern the number of jurors and the unanimity requirements. So unless the right is waived, a court rule requires 12 jurors in felony criminal cases statutes require six, a statute and a court rule, I should say, six in misdemeanor criminal jury trials. And civil trials in district circuit and probate courts uh, have to have six jurors. That's a statutory requirement. Most courts usually have an alternate or two because things happen. And both a statute and a court rule require unanimous verdicts in criminal cases, both felony and misdemeanor. But in civil cases, five out of six jurors can, can agree on a result and then in mental illness cases in probate courts, those jury verdicts also have to be unanimous. So it's a it's a big mix, and you have to be able to like cross reference like uh, statutes and court rules to figure out what's what. But most lawyers kind of figure it out, and it's not, it's not complicated. Uh, what about West Virginia? So as I mentioned earlier, of course, our numbers of jurors in civil versus criminal cases is set by the Constitution at six for civil and 12 for criminal, regardless of the crime. So there's no differentiation by constitutional or other requirement for between felonies and misdemeanors. So the rules of civil, our rules, it's not addressed in the constitution. So our rules of criminal procedure require that verdicts be unanimous in criminal cases. As you mentioned, that's similar. And then 
our rules of civil procedure require unanimous verdict in civil cases, but the parties can, may stipulate that a majority verdict is binding instead of a unanimous verdict in a six-person civil case. And you mentioned something, and I probably should highlight it, um, is this whole kind of concept of alternates. And I'll just mention that for a minute, and then, Rana, you can add to it. You know, because you know best of all of us, having been a trial judge, you know, when you're seating a jury... Um, and when you have these requirements, there'll be a certain number of people on the jury. You have to make sure that you have the people to last for the entire trial. So, of course, the trial judge is going to try to make sure that people don't have commitments and that, that they don't have health circumstances that will keep them from serving, particularly if it's anticipated that the trial could go more than a week, you know, that they'll be able to sit. But um, the, the judges also have to put an alternate in or two. And so you might have alternates sitting who, of course, the jury doesn't deliberate until the end. So they're not talking about the case throughout. And those alternates may or may not be required to then sit in the jury room and deliberate. It's just kind of how it works. So even though six and 12 are these numbers, typically, if you're looking at a trial, there'll be more than six or, or 12 people sitting there because you need to make sure that you have enough jurors to deliberate once it's time to do that. No, I think that's a really a good thing to mention is, and that's where we, the only time we really drop under 12 is if sometimes they'll say, let's, and we're going to agree to not sit any alternates. And if it falls under, we're going to agree that at that point, we'll go to the trial with whatever we have left. Um, but I was really interested about how both your states had six and boy, that would be way easier um, in some respects, but as an attorney, I'd be curious what attorneys think about that, if that would be easier, more difficult to get a verdict. So I'm going to move to today's times and talk a little bit about COVID and the impact in the pandemic. And I'm curious about um, conducting civil or criminal jury trials by Zoom or video conferencing software. And if either of your courts made any changes to provide for this and or if so, are you going to continue it or are you looking at any rule changes regarding to keeping this or in the future? So I can start. Like every state Supreme Court, we issued um, emergency orders to allow an awful lot of what happens in courtrooms to, to happen on remote platforms, as well as streamlining filing and service and making sort of process a lot easier. And we will definitely take many of those changes with us. Um, we did not require jury trials on remote platforms. And I do think in criminal cases, there are some important constitutional issues that have to be kind of worked out for people require that, which isn't to say that litigants can't consent to it and might make sense in some cases to do that. We didn't even require it in civil cases. Some states did. The lawyers in, in Michigan are, many of them are pretty negative on that idea. And I'm not sure why? But I'm hoping there'll be some that want to at least try it going forward. It feels to me like an important moment to gather some data. We know from Texas that by allowing remote jury trials or even requiring it in some cases, they drastically increased juror participation. People who had transportation, you know, physical courthouses pre present barriers too, right? And they, they sent iPads to people and especially in rural counties when people couldn't make it to a courthouse every day. They were eager and willing to participate when they had a remote option. This is anecdotal, and I actually think it's time for us to move away from anecdote and towards data, but lawyers in Washington State and California um, and Texas on both sides of the courtroom report very positive experiences with 
remote jury trials. So I hope we at least are open to running some experiments, gathering some data, and figuring out what we can learn from it. If it's a way to increase citizen participation and in our process, we should be figuring out how to make it work. To add to that, I think, well, first of all, in West Virginia, we did not have any remote, uh, I haven't had any remote jury juries serve. So, you know, we've had, we had a whole variety, just as in all of the states, you know, of interesting ways to do things, you know, moving to larger facilities so the jurors could be socially distanced when that was a thing, you know, putting out plexiglass, all of the things, but we didn't get to this idea of juries, you know, tuning in through an iPad or, or other, you know, platforms in order to serve on juries. And I know there's been some interesting work in Texas. I think in rural places like West Virginia, where probably every one of our counties has places where there is no cell service still. I think it's going to be a while before we can think about that because until everywhere can tune in. Um, you know, we still have horrible internet options, even in, in some places in our state. So until that sort of infrastructure exists, I don't think we're probably going to get there, but I will certainly be watching places that do figure it out and do start to compile some data because I think we need to, to look at it all. I think uh, lawyers are, gonna, are, are gonna, going to be resistant because, you know, there's something about presenting a case to people physically there who can look at the witnesses and evaluate their demeanor. I think, you know, we're probably learning how to do that now on Zoom. And similar, I guess Zoom is now like Kleenex, right? It doesn't matter what the platform is. We just call it Zoom. But I think it'll be a little while. I'll be interested in how it all works. What about Arkansas? We had a provision where there could be civil jury trials by Zoom um, if both parties agreed. We didn't sort of mandate it, but nobody took advantage of it. Um, <laughs> and so we didn't have any. And that was just during the pandemic, during a you know limited per curiam. We now have some proposed, a proposed rule out there floating around that I think we're going to make some rules permanent. We had some pretty strict provisions where witnesses couldn't even testify by video, even in civil cases. And so we have proposed rules out there right now to modify that permanently to allow that to go forward. And we're actually beginning to look at the pilot, a pilot program for juries and civil, similar to Texas with the iPads and purchasing some. I think we have some funds and we're gonna move forward with that and see if we can get attorneys and judges to participate and move forward. But what I'm really curious in is from the appellate side. And so I'm gonna see what you guys think is, and I haven't talked to Texas or Washington state, but we as judges defer credibility findings to the trial judge in so many cases where when there's not this video testimony and even in cases whether there's a jury or not there's so much that we we don't see the jurors and so we're just reading the stale sort of paper record and i do wonder how much that's going to change if that's there if the video gets sent up to the court on appeal, and I think that that is occurring in Washington state, would that change or should that change the appellate process and our standard of review? If now we can visually see the witnesses, what do you guys think about that? Well, I'll start and I guess I'll um, draw an analogy to what we ha have already, which is occasionally, of course, as I'm sure you all do too, 
you know, evidence comes up in video form, mm -hmm. whether it's a video that was presented to the jury or whatever it may be. And, you know, we do look at that and you do have to check yourself to say, you know, I'm not looking at what, how I would have made this determination, mm -hmm. but I am examining according to, you know, the standard of review, whether this, the, the trial judge got it correct. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about being an appellate judge is it's kind of a, a cold record, as we say, you know, there's not, you can divorce yourself of some of the emotion when you're just reading a paper transcript mm -hmm. and you see a victim or you see a, you know, one side or the other or somebody's expert or whatever it is. When you see their words on a page, whether it's an electronic page or a paper page, you're just looking at the content. And when you have a video, you're seeing you know, how they present and you say, boy, that looks like that person I knew 10 years ago and they're not very credible or stupid or whatever. <laughs> in all of, all of the stuff we talk about in implicit bias starts creeping into your head and it's easy to sometimes forget about the standard of review. So I think it's, I think it would be a challenge. I'm sure we're, we'll head there, but I bet you that Bridget has thought about this. So I'm curious what she thinks. No, I actually think it's really good. They're going to be a set of very hard questions that we're all like all of our courts are eventually going to be trying to work through. But like your courts, of course, we do already have cases where there is video evidence. And there's a difference between, in my view, making a decision about the fact finders assessment of credibility, for example, of a witness and was the taillight out on that stop mm -hmm. when the person right. was pulled over, right? So there's some sometimes a video reveals something important about facts. And sometimes it's something a little squishier where I think deference to fact finders is really important. And we don't want to get in the business of, you know, basically having, you know, each appellate court relitigate all of the questions that were litigated in the, in the first instance. But I think we'll be working that out as we go along. So it's, it's going to be a set of interesting questions. I don't know what, Rhonda, do you have thoughts? I think, no, I mean, the only thing I, I think it can lend to, I'm reluctant. I hope that we don't really change our rules because I don't think that the appellate court should be the second shot at retrying the case, right? We're looking at, we're more error correction, but I do wonder for us, it would be, you know, primarily the intermediate court, but there may be more times that a trial court gets affirmed if you were seeing the video than on times where they reverse on a trial court's discretionary in the sense that from the record, they don't really see what the trial court's seen. And so they think, oh, there just wasn't enough there for them to make that finding versus if they actually saw it, it may be different. So I, I'd be really curious if that would occur more. There may actually be more confirmation of why some of the decisions are being made and I think sometimes things we read in the cold, hard record sound very stark. When you see the context, it may be different as well. So I do think it'll change um, a lot of things. But anyway, I'm just really curious about that. Let's move. Um, I think we're getting close to the end. So to the lightning round, we can, we'll go Beth, Bridget, then me. Start with one, if you have a unique question that you ask potential law clerks. So my current term clerk is a golfer, actually a collegiate golfer, and I am a golfer. So he reminded me that when I interviewed him, I did want to know about his golf skills, although that is not something that I ask everyone. And it may or may not have been important to me. 
I send them on a scavenger hunt. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you almost got us down. there. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wanted to say it with a straight face and get all the way through it. No, I don't have any interesting questions. I do spend a lot of time making sure they understand how lonely appellate clerkships can be. You want to make sure this is what you want to be doing because what it means is spending a lot of time, you know, reading and writing and sometimes in your own rabbit hole that's in your own head and one of my my newest clerk yesterday wrote to me and said I know I owe you this memo she said but I just want you to know I'm working my way back out of a, a legal rabbit hole that I found and I was like you're doing great Kate good job so I do I ask them you know to really think hard about whether this is right for them but it's not that interesting Rhonda yeah I don't know if this is an interesting question but I do always ask what the last book they've read <laughs> I was going to ask whether you ask them if they have a library card. <laughs> if they have a library card. Yeah, that's that's the other one. Everybody should have a library card. Everybody. Um, even if you just, if you are old, you know, new school audiobooks, you should have an audio, a library card. I'm just telling you, libraries are cool. But it tells you a lot about, because what, what we do is read, right? And you have to just be able to spend 80% of your life reading. And so if, if you don't sort of seek that out and have that ability and just try to get to know them as a person, even if their last book was pre-law school, you know, cause they haven't had time, it's okay. But anyway, so Beth, if you were no longer in the law profession, what profession would you be in? Well, if I hadn't gone to law school, I probably would have become a college professor of literature. So I'm going to go with that if I were not in the legal profession. And I think I probably would have answered this question differently, like, you know, every 10 years of my career, but you're asking it to me today. And I want to run bike trips in like Europe, basically. I want to like run bike trips in Tuscany. That's what I want to do. Well, I would either be a writer or I would own a used bookstore. Not too late, Rhonda. You could still open a used bookstore. I know. It's, and you are it's a writer. out of my house. <laughs> and you are a writer. So, you know. <laughs> Probably more creative writer. So your next question is your favorite childhood cereal. I don't even know if this one still exists, but I did love King Vitamin. Uh, have breakfast with uh, the king. Yeah. Uh, and Apple Jacks, mm -hmm. which Ooh, I think may still exist. Yeah, those were good. But mine is Lucky Charms, hands down. And literally to this day, love a bowl of Lucky Charms. Can't help it. Rhonda? I was peanut butter Captain Crunch. Oh. I still, yeah, could, and I could just eat it plain. You know, it's a great snack too, just, just saying. <laughs> so would you rather hike to the top of Mount Everest or jump out of a plane, Beth? This is a great question because I actually had a friend who just tried Mount Kilimanjaro in her late 50s and she almost made it, except that she caught COVID on the way up. So it, a very 2022 story. But anyway, I, that being said, I would jump out of a plane in a minute. God, I really don't want to do either, Rhonda. I don't like this question. I don't, I won't, I really don't want to do either, but I guess I'm going to have to climb Mount Everest. I mean, okay. I, I can always abort if it's not working out, right? So the thing about jumping out of a plane is once I jump, I don't think there's any way to get out of it. So I guess I'm going to go with Mount Everest. I'm going to jump out of the plane. I am going to take the quick, easy route. You know, that just, 
Just get it. I don't know if it's easy, but it is definitely. Well, just rip the rip the band aid. You know, I'm gonna jump out of the plane. I'm like you, Bridget. I wouldn't choose either, but I'll go. Well, thank you once again for joining us with Lady Justice Women of the Court. And as always, you can catch us between episodes on Twitter individually or at our podcast handle at Lady Justice Pod C. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice Women of the Court. To learn more about this podcast access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. There, you can also record a voice message with a question or comment. The opinions expressed on this program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.